Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. Today we're going to be talking with Brianna Latipel, who is an intuitive spiritual healer, movement therapist, and teacher. She has a master's degree in English from Harvard University and has studied traditional naturopathy, plant and herbal medicine, and shamanism. She lives in Florida with her husband and three boys, where she works with nonprofit organizations to heal trafficked and exploited children. Wow, that's um, that's something else. Today we're going to be talking. Welcome, Brianna. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be talking about Brianna's book, Emerging from Darkness, a spiritual memoir and guide back to the light. This is such an interesting read that um, I think I read it in one day and I related to so much of of the story in your book. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Me too. Okay. Let's start off by telling me, telling us what uh, was the purpose? Why did you write this book? No, I never intended to write this book. I've always been a writer and I'd written in many different genres and a a lot of commercial advertising and things like that. So I really had no plans to write my own story, but um, what happened, and a lot of this is in the book itself, um, I found my life going down a very dark road. And uh, frankly, it's a miracle that I'm even alive, but we can get into that one later. Okay. Finally, I finally found an amazing healer who taught me how to heal myself, how to transmute the energy of the trauma, uh, not, not just my own, but my intergenerational trauma. My lineage was quite a mess, as I'm sure many can relate. Right. And mm-hmm. once I got on the other side of that journey, amazing things started to happen. And my life opened up in so many different ways and truly in ways that I had long given up thinking were even possible. Um, I would have been happy to make it to 30 with the childhood that I had. Um, And so when my life started to dramatically change, uh, I felt compelled to start writing about it because I kept meeting people that had either a similar story or um, an overlapping childhood, whether it was the abuse part or the the deeply religious nature of the family, just um, somehow feeling stifled and voiceless. And I feel like more people feel voiceless and powerless today than ever before in the history of this planet, which that's saying something. I agree right? with you. <laughs> For I a do. long time, it's not exactly been a cushy existence, but things are quite polarized and brutal right now. So... Uh, <clears throat> actually my guides and my angels who uh, essentially told me to write this book and um, one day in the middle of the pandemic they said to me um, go away for three days and write your book and I said what book (laughs) three days (laughs) three days and this is asking a lot because it's the middle of lockdowns I had a brand new baby and two other boys who are now homeschooled. (laughs) My husband is in the hospital treating COVID patients. We have no help because everyone's terrified of the virus. So um, we were, and I was trying to work remotely, even though I had a new baby. So we were juggling a lot. So for me to say to my husband, baby, I need to leave you and the boys for three days. (laughs) 
but uh, he's wonderful. And at this point, we've lived together for so long that he knows that uh, I'm not crazy. And if I say that's what I need to do, that's what I need to do. But I was a little bit nervous because even though he graciously allowed me this time, I I arrived at my destination not having any idea what to write about. I didn't know there was a book in me. So uh, I prayed for guidance and for the divine to pour through me whatever there was to say. And three days later, I left with 300 pages. Um, not prose, just the, the thoughts and everything that had poured out of me. Right. And I thought the intent was then to clean it up and release it, but know the message there thereafter for almost two years was, okay, wait, wait, wait. And I kept thinking, what am I waiting for? And then it was just last, um, I'm sorry, not this past October, but the October prior that they said, okay, go away for three days and finish your book. It's oh. like, again said sweetheart <laughs> I'm sorry I gotta do it again but sure enough three days later I had a completed manuscript and so that's how the book was born it was quite organic wow now when you say they are you talking about spirit guides angels who who do you communicate with uh both um I'm definitely I'm always talking about my spirit guides they've been with me since the beginning but um my angels, some were with me as, as a child, and I wrote a little bit about that, but some have only, I was going to say showed up recently, but that may not be accurate. It may be that I was only more recently able to perceive them. Gotcha. Exactly. Right. I understand. You say in the beginning of your book, um, we are not responsible for what happened to us as innocent children or for what happened to our ancestors in their childhoods but we're responsible to change that legacy. We must be willing with God's help to take responsibility for doing the work of transformation. Otherwise we, we become willing players in our family's chain of pain. Uh, this, is, this is a very important statement <clears throat> because a lot of people feel as if they're being punished and they sort of shrink in the face of it um, rather than making the changes that they need. Tell us about the, the legacy of pain that we have. That is actually from my foreword. Those were Dr. Christian Northrup's words. Okay. So not my own. However, I agree. Okay. <laughs> and okay. I can certainly speak to that. So at this point in our evolution as, as a human consciousness, there is not a soul on this planet who's not carrying generations worth of pain. And that would be difficult under any circumstances. But what happens that I think most people are not necessarily aware of, at least in their conscious minds, is that when you have pain in your ancestral line, unless somebody actually does the work and possesses the strength, the wherewithal, the intelligence, and has the tools to break that cycle, you pay it forward. And it's not as if anybody, I hope, wants to do this. It's simply what happens. So trauma, every, every different type of trauma has a frequency, right? So it's an energy. It's, it's, it's something that you emanate. Uh, and again, not on a conscious level, but um, speaking through my legacy, my, we have a long family history of sexual abuse, very, very long, okay. as far back as I am aware of, 
in fact, and probably much further than that, because these things don't just come out of thin air one day, right? Mm. These things are carried forward. So every woman that I am aware of in my ancestral lineage has been sexually abused, assaulted in in one way or another. So that, that was never interrupted. That cycle was never dealt with. That pain was never transmuted. So it kept being born into every subsequent generation. So when I came along, it was really no surprise that I then experienced years of sexual trauma because I was carrying around the frequency of my ancestry, of my mother and her mother and her mother before that. And so at this point, I've come to believe that I am the one who came to interrupt that cycle because I never want this to move forward through one more generation, not through my beautiful children or anyone else's beautiful children. But that is what it takes to end the cycle. You have to actively interrupt them, transmute the energy that is sitting in you, even if it doesn't belong to you, send it back to the light and find a new way to relate to the world, to really step into who you are, free of all of that external influence, pressure, and the definition of anyone else. Um. You say uh, in the beginning of your book, though it may appear as though our world has never been darker or housed more suffering, humanity is experiencing an unprecedented awakening and each of us has chosen to participate. We're witnessing the convergence of human understanding and divine expression that will ultimately lead to ascension of humankind and the creation of a new world that works for everyone. I have heard this over and over and over again. Is this a message that you got directly from your guides and angels? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so it isn't just uh, kind of our perception that this is going on, but this really is going on. There's a lot of, a lot of things that are working themselves out right now, right? They are. That's part of the reason it looks so unbearably dark and violent and hateful out there. If you think of it as purging, all this darkness has has been here, right, for generations. Um, For a very long time, it was simmering just under the surface. So it was able to hide in the shadow. But right now, uh, as our energy ascends and as our collective consciousness grows and we decide we don't want this way of life anymore, we actually want a world that is cooperative and supportive of all life. All of that darkness, and uh, that includes essentially every negative frequency you can think of, whether it is abuse or violence or, or trapping, all, all of it, mm-hmm. that all has to be brought to the surface because we can't deal with it unless we can see it. So it has to come bubbling on up so we can send it back to the light and create what we want. So things, I realize things look awful right now, but they're actually amazing. This is the last gasping, dying breath of a paradigm that wasn't working. That's so hopeful. That is really hopeful. Um, And it takes, you know, a lot of faith. But as I said, I've heard this so many times in so many different ways and i believe it's true it's just really hard to go through this last piece um you said that you were a joyful little creature but you you didn't feel compatible with your surroundings what did you mean by that 
Well, when I, when I think about myself as a child, I trace back uh, basically as far as I can remember. I remember feeling like, like a little fairy you'd see in a cartoon. I loved everything and everyone. I loved, I loved the outdoors. I felt so close to the earth. I loved the flowers and the ocean and just all life. It felt like it would speak to me, not in words, but when I was near it, it's as if we would share a vibration and I would feel so fulfilled and just warm and elated. It's almost like being in love, right? You, you just feel so supported and loved and protected and like you were in exactly the right spot. And then humans would cross my path. <laughs> and I love humanity. I truly do. I'm here to be of service to humanity. Mm-hmm. The humans that I was born to, I should say, because it is now by my belief that I chose all of this. So I chose to be born into a family that was deeply dysfunctional and unhappy, um, mm-hmm. very fundamentalist, very religious, um, very dogmatic. And they did not know what to do with me. God bless them. I, they just thought that I was nuts. <laughs> and so I kept up. I was in with all my joy and my light and my sparkle. And then I kept running into absolute misery. People who wanted to destroy my joy because they didn't have it, because it challenged them. It confronted their belief systems. And um, at, at this point, I feel like that paradigm has existed for so long that even even the systems we live by, right, the medical system, our political system, our academic system, even all of these great big entities are imbued with the frequencies of misery, dominance, control, manipulation. I just didn't understand. (laughs) That's this little joyful thing. I didn't know what was wrong. And I was really certain that I had landed on the wrong planet. (laughs) I said, please, somebody come pick me up. Right. And that's amazing for a little child. I mean, so you felt that way back. I mean, I felt that as an adult that I've been on, that I'm on the wrong planet, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I really do. Um, but I didn't feel that as a child, but I just, it wasn't a happy childhood. And you said that you found, um, <clears throat> you found solitude. Um, in, you know, being by yourself and being in nature in meaningful conversations rather than small talk. Yes, yes. Because if I, if I was in nature, if I was outside and away from those dark energies of unhappy people, I was great. In fact, um, where I grew up, we, we were out in the boonies and uh, there was a big valley next to my house. And I built myself a little shelter into the side of this valley. I used a, I found a, an old trash can that I sawed off and made a little rain shelter so that I could go sit out there and oh. didn't have to be in my house because it, it was just so full of misery. But if I was outside, I was okay. And it wasn't until much later in my life that I really started meeting, uh, I call them soul, soul sisters, soul family, uh, soul brothers, people who You know, the instant you meet sometimes with someone, you feel this deep, beautiful resonance and you know that something much larger than a human experience is happening. Right. As a kid, I really didn't have, those were few and far between. And um, it was almost never with other children. I only found it with adults. So everybody thought I was very strange. (laughs) Yeah. But actually you say rather, so 
they your family tried to make you the believer that they wanted you to believe but their the fighting and the way that they behaved only served to reveal how fearful and powerless they felt in their own lives um <clears throat> and you could see this you could see that um this none of this made any sense right yes it was very confusing because my family so one side was fundamentalist catholic and the other side was fundamentalist protestant so already they just hated each other and it was constant warring and sometimes it was verbal but sometimes it was just the energy i could always feel it and they all assumed that i couldn't i think they thought they were hiding it well but oh boy holidays were <laughs> Not fun. Oh, wow. uh, we were constantly, each side was always trying to convince me and my sister, though I'm not quite sure how she processed this, but they were always trying to convince me that their side was not only correct, but the only way to see it. And if I didn't agree, I was going to hell. Oh. And I remember thinking, this is absolute absurdity. How can you, how can you believe that? Like clearly, I don't think that either of my parents is going to hell. So it's strange that each of them thought the other one was going to hell. And I just remember thinking how odd to fight over something that none of you can know. And every time I asked a question, they'd get very frustrated with me. And I would never get an answer. It was more like, because I said so, or because the Bible says so. Right. It was never, because I was looking to understand. I thought something was wrong with me. Right. <laughs> they probably still think that. Right. I, yeah, I, I used to get the same answer because because that's the way it is. I, never I kept thinking that. to myself, where's the rule book? Yes. <laughs> the rule book that these are crazy rules are coming from. Because And I wanted to know things too, and I never got the answers because my family didn't have them either. Exactly. <laughs> that's what it took me years to figure out is that they couldn't answer me because they didn't know. They didn't and know. then I was more disturbed by the fact that they never asked and they were comfortable blindly following this doctrine, whatever it was. And that's certainly not to disparage anyone's beliefs or doctrine because we each have our own sacred right. path we follow and it's different for every soul walking the earth. Right. But to force your beliefs on another <laughs> felt so out of alignment to me that I, I couldn't understand it. And it took me years to realize that I wasn't supposed to. I did not come to fit in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, in, I wrote my memoir, and I have other books out there, but when I wrote my memoir, in the beginning, I talk about, as a child, I just could not look through the same narrow lens that my mother did. I just couldn't, it, there, I knew so much more was out there, and she tried to keep everything real small <clears throat> and real controlled, and I never saw things that way. Um, but you know, I was a pleaser child, so I never made a fuss. Um, you said as a child, you didn't realize that everything that you suppress comes back to torment you in one way or another. And so you've experienced physical ramifications for this, right? Yes. I was a pleaser too. I figured out that that was the only way to avoid the persecution. Right. So I became an expert at mirroring and reading the room and essentially behaving exactly the way they wanted me to. But I didn't realize that suppressing my soul and my intuition and that voice and my angels and my guides, it was really costing me. 
And I didn't figure it out for many years. But um, even as a little girl, when I made that decision to turn it all off and try try my best to fit in and stop making them so angry, I started getting sick. I had brutal, vicious migraines. Um, as far back as I can remember was the age of three, but they may even have predated that. It's hard to say. But once I actively started suppressing everything and that energy had no way to come out of me, I was so ill all the time. I was in so much pain. I couldn't see or think or wow. hear, vomiting constantly. Wow. And then, um, of course, that that took me down a road of, of other torment. And I ended up in many abusive relationships and you know it's a cycle what darkness begets darkness just yep. as light begets light yep yeah I mean you can really see it really shows up when you begin having adult relationships that's when you can see how how much has happened to you <clears throat> I always had stomach issues and um panic attacks where I I couldn't breathe oh. <clears throat> and I was taken my parents would take me to the hospital, you know, and they'd look at me and nothing's wrong with her. You know, of course, I didn't understand what was happening to me as a child. Um, I have the same story a lot. Nothing's wrong with me. They thought I had a brain tumor, my parents, but every, they took me to all kinds of specialists and they kept saying, no, there's nothing. She's fine. I'm thinking, I am not fine. And I still experience that today. So, because I'm still having some residual um, somatic experiences in my body that I'm working on trying to get rid of because my nervous system is so disrupted from all those years but um i go to doctors with issues and they don't they say you're you're the picture of health <laughs> okay okay yeah so i've learned that that is not the root for my healing the doctors are not the root for my healing you talk about your father in uh, in this book. You said your father was an enigma to the outside world. He was endlessly charming, charismatic, and gracious. But at home, he was controlling, hostile, with a hair-trigger temper, and constant mood swings. Now, <coughs> I have to tell you, and you may already know this, that my expertise is in narcissistic abuse. I did not know that. I read that, and I knew exactly what was going on in your family. So I grew up, you had a narcissistic father, I had a narcissistic mother, but I didn't realize it till I was in my 40s. Didn't, didn't connect um, because my mother was very covert, but it sounds like your father was really very overt with his behavior. You know, depending on the situation, he was such an expert. Uh, almost amazing at modeling the perfect, like leave it to beaver, happy family anytime we were in public. And this included extended family. Mm -hmm. um, I remember his favorite thing to do is we'd be on the way to a family gathering or holiday and he'd start a fight. So by the time we got there, my mom and my sister and I would be crying. We'd be sobbing, fragile, just messes. And he would be all lit up with a, the Tom Cruise smile and everyone would think, well, what's wrong with them? And then behind closed doors, you know, this poor man. And of course, in retrospect, from where I'm sitting now, I have a very different opinion of him. As a child, he terrified me. And then once I escaped that household, I, I hated him for a lot of years. It took me a long time to realize that he was reacting to his own upbringing and his own trauma. 
So I have a lot more compassion now, but yeah, living with him was extremely difficult. And um, he scared me to death because he was so volatile. I used to like pray that friends or family who were visiting wouldn't leave because when they did, all bets were off. <clears throat> and what you're describing is really textbook of how families operate when there's a narcissistic parent. Behind closed doors, it's chaos and confusion and pain and loud and anger. And when you go to somewhere else, that person is the, the picture of perfection. Everybody loves the narcissist. Everybody loves them. Everybody loved my mother. You know, everybody sent her love notes and, you know, oh, you're so wonderful. They would just praise her up, to, up and down because she knew how to work a room. <laughs> and they're amazing at it. They mm -hmm. really are. Um, I actually learned a lot in retrospect. I'll bet. I'll bet you have. Um, so, but knowing that you grew up in that environment tells me a whole lot about your experience. Was your mother an enabler? Did she enable him to behave oh, that way? Absolutely. And I think looking back, because I used to be really angry about that. Uh, but I wrote about that a little bit, that even though he was the more perceptibly abusive party, by the time I left that house, she was the one I was most angry at because I felt like she just let it happen. She watched it happen for years. And it is not my personality to stand by and watch abuse happening and not do anything about it. So I was angrier with her. But now I realize that she was just trying to survive. So she was the ultimate enabler, perpetual. Right. And um, in my book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, um, which I wrote about narcissistic abuse, I have a whole chapter um, devoted to the enabling spouse. Uh, because in a family system, that the narcissistic um, spouse, the husband or wife, cannot really get away with it if they don't have an enabler. And in many cases, uh, <clears throat> there'll be a divorce. If somebody, somebody really stands up to them, they're not going to be able to stay in this environment, but those who do are, it's a self-serving purpose. There's something they want from it. And, you know, right. Um, yeah. Like my father, my father was the enabler. He lost his mother at age five. He didn't even remember her. So my mother was his mother. She was the, that she served that role for him and he would have died without her. So that it's makes pretty sense. sad, but you know, and, and when I work with um, adult children, they always tell me that the other parent was the more loving parent. And I say, well, you know, did they advocate for you? When push came to shove, who did they align with? It wasn't the children. It was always the spouse because survival mode, as you said, they're in survival mode. <clears throat> Um, you said, thanks to the education of your childhood, you already knew how easy it was to manipulate fundamentalists, in this case, the religious variety, into senseless action by convincing them that someone irretrievably strayed from the flock and thus poses an ex existential threat to their well-being. Um, how did you do that? <clears throat> How did, how did I, I'm sorry, how did I figure so, it out? So you said, you know, you could convince them. Um, you said, thanks to the education, you knew how easy it was to manipulate fundamentalists. 
how did you manipulate fundamentalists? Oh, oh no, no, I wasn't saying that I did that. That was yeah. my observation from growing up with them. Oh. Um, I, I forget what part of the book that is. Is that the chapter where I'm talking about my experience during COVID and the lockdowns? Let me see. Chapter seven. There was a reason because it was on returning from my remarkable trip. I was on a, quite a spiritual high and ruthlessly optimistic. Okay. Yes. Yes. So I, so that was the, the beginning of my reawakening, if you will. Okay. Um, so that trip to Egypt, it really shook me out of my stupor and forced me to look at who I really am and come to terms with everything that I had put on, on personal lockdown for myself to try and survive my family. So all my gifts had come rushing back and, um, boy, I need to reread my own book. (laughs) It's okay. That's okay. Tell us about your trip. Tell us about your trip to Egypt. That was very magical, right? Oh, it was. Well, since, um, as long as I can remember, I had been having this dream and um, it took me years to realize that it was actually a vision, but I'd been having the same dream every night, my whole life. And uh, I never see myself. I'm seeing through my own eyes and I am in some sort of beautiful outdoor temple. And uh, I know it's Egypt because I can see the hieroglyphics on the beautiful stone columns and it's some kind of a festival. And um, I can roughly tell the time period by what people are wearing and what's being served as food and um, what I'm smelling. And I am on, uh, I'm, I'm raised on some kind of a platform, a stage or something looking down onto this festival and I can feel a very powerful presence to my right. I can always feel, and I know it's, it's a him, I know it's a male, but I never see him. So I had this snippet of a dream every night for years and years. And I never knew what it meant, but I had always been strongly called to Egypt, very interested in reading, hearing and absorbing anything about ancient Egypt. Um, I was, you might call it obsessed (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't know why. I just thought everyone must find it this interesting because it's fascinating. So in grad school, I had an opportunity to actually go with um, the dean of my program and a couple of other TAs because we were designing a course for the following semester about Western views of Orientalism. And I was so excited to be able to go. And I really didn't even know why. You're ever drawn to something so powerfully and, and your brain doesn't necessarily understand it, but Right. Your your unconscious self is pushing you to something. Right. So anyway, um, I arrived, and this is a very long story, so I'll have to cherry pick. Okay. okay. But from the moment I arrived, I felt for the first time in my life like I was where I belonged. Wow. So it was the inverse of my childhood experience, right? Where here I am with my loving family, and I was dying to get out of there. Here I arrive in a country that, by the way, my family was furious with me for going. They called me a terrorist sympathizer. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. So this is the level of consciousness we're dealing with there. Right. Right. Um, So I arrive in this place. And yes, you know, I was a a woman, not quite alone, but um, not not traveling with a partner. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing there or of the customs, but Mm -hmm. I have never felt so comfortable anywhere in my life it felt like I'd come home and I thought it was a little odd but um you know we were I just went with it and from then on I had a series of remarkable experiences every time we visited a temple or some sort of holy sacred religious site I was having visions that were 
they were blowing my consciousness open. I was having memories and I, I did not realize until this trip that that dream I had was actually a memory. It was a vision. Um, and I was wandering through the temple of Karnak, which is the most massive religious site still on this planet. It's huge. It's like a city. So um, I was wandering aimlessly, <laughs> kind of letting my soul be my guide and walking through these columns and temples and just what, what's left mm -hmm. of Karnak. And I came into this clearing mm -hmm. where there were several of these large pillars covered with hieroglyphics. And I felt pulled to one in particular and I put my hand on it. And when that happened, I disappeared. I, I, I really, I can hardly describe it, but immediately uh, my, uh, my eyes closed involuntarily and I was back in my vision and that dream that I had had every night. And I realized I was standing in the place that that vision was happening, but it was thousands of years earlier. And um, I got so much more of the picture and I remembered like this, this being to my right, I remembered who I was. And I realized that I, for the first time, I think in my life that I wasn't crazy, that I wasn't imagining any of those things that happened to me as a child, or I had many other visions too. But that moment really solidified for me that I had to pay attention to that voice inside me that was trying to come out, that I had come to earth for a reason, that I had experienced that family for a reason, and that I had work to do. And that was the beginning of my awakening. And um, part of the way that plays into the question you asked me previously is that really that experience really served to shake me out of whatever religious confines were still draped over me. I had done my best to, to buck them off and had studied many world religions, mm -hmm. traveled extensively, mm -hmm. trying to understand where this need to believe in something specific had come from. Because honestly, I, I never, I never understood it. I have no problem with anyone's beliefs, but I really did not understand this. This what I saw as desperation mm -hmm. to cling to a very dogmatic, particular set of rules. Uh, like you were saying, who wrote the rule book? Right. So right, when exactly. that happened, um, I finally realized what had happened to my family, and that they had been manipulated probably like many generations before and told this is what we believe and that's the way it is there there is no why except that this serves those who would seek to control us that telling people they they can't ask questions they can't have a different perspective this is all indoctrination right and I, i'm not you know i would never ever tell anyone what their journey is or what their appropriate belief system is. Right. But I would also, um, I would caution anyone who's listening. If someone is telling you they know what is best for you, they have an agenda. Right. I agree with you. And I think the difference is, like I have a relative who, um, you know, in her early 20s, she sought out a very religious track. Um, but for her, it brought her so much joy that she's just this light. So it was what she needed and she's happy with it. She's not putting that on anybody else, but you can tell that it's joyous for her. The experience is joyous for her. And I think that's the difference. Yes, um, and beautiful. <clears throat> I love when I see that. Um, I know someone 
who for a very long time was uh, very, very Roman Catholic, had been raised that way, married to another, and the relationship was abusive and unhappy. And then when she left that relationship, she became a Jehovah's Witness, and I have never seen her happier. And while that's not my path, I can see that it it is serving her. Yeah. So that's wonderful. It's, you know, being here is about finding who you really are and what your path is and how you can be of service to others, whatever that looks like. Right, right, exactly. You know, when I go into, um, <clears throat> I was raised Jewish and um, in my childhood, we used to have to go to temple every week. And as an adult, if I walk into a temple, I have like a, my whole body rejects it. I just reject. I feel horrible. I feel like I can't be in my skin. It's the most uncomfortable feeling in the world. And I look around and I see other people really being fed by it, you know, and I'm, it's so repelling to me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's because the way it was presented to me was of, was very rigid and I didn't ex understand it like you did you know there are beautiful explanations for the things that are going on but I never heard them and I didn't believe that you know that my parents knew anything you know knew what why they were doing it and so like you I've never been so I don't follow just because I'm told to you tell me to follow it I'm going the other way right? yes right? yes I think that's it's that kind of strength and perseverance and clarity of mind that allows you to come in and be that pattern interrupt that your ancestry so sorely needs. Mm -hmm. And um, boy, can I relate to, to the story that you just told? Because mm -hmm. um, as a child, you know, I didn't get it either. I just thought I must be missing something because we also had to go to church every week and then catechism and stuff on top of that. And every time I was in that building, I would feel like someone had their hand around my throat and that I was so stifled and silenced. And finally, I would get so nauseous, I'd have to run outside and vomit. Oh my gosh. And, um, my parents wow. thought I was so disrespectful. And I felt terrible because I didn't mean to do that, but I couldn't be in there. Couldn't be in there. And um, brief funny story. So, of course, you know, eventually I grew up, stopped going into to any churches. There was a period where I went to every church I could find just to see if they all felt that way to me. And some did and some didn't. And then for a period, I did not enter any religious site at all. And this went on for quite a while, especially while I've been doing uh, my work, my deep spiritual work. And so just about just a couple of months ago, I was invited to a wedding in a Catholic church. And I didn't realize till I stepped through the door that I haven't been inside a Catholic church in eons. It has been years and years. Right. And whatever the last time was, it definitely left me with that same sick, stifled, trapped feeling. Mm -hmm. But that was long before uh, I did the work uh, or, or that, I'll, that I get to later in the book where uh, I worked with that healer and I learned how to transmute energy. So this time, the first time in my life, I was in a Catholic church. And I was finally very comfortable, not because it had changed. I could feel that same frequency trying to get into my consciousness, but this time it could not get into me. And I was sitting there and it was a beautiful ceremony. It really was. But I was sitting there actively transmuting those, those little frequency fingers that were trying to get me. And I forgot for a moment that the way energy often comes out of me is all yawn. 
This used to get me in big trouble as a kid. I'd sit around the table, they'd pray, and I would yawn, not understanding that I was transmuting discordant frequencies that did not serve anyone. So as soon as I started transmuting the energy in this church, I would start yawning during the wedding ceremony. I was like, oh, dear God, stop it. So I had to slide way down in the pew because I certainly didn't want to offend anybody. I feel like I want to yawn now. Yeah, you might. me too. That's wow, just how wow, wow, it wow. come. <laughs> so it was a very different and actually pleasant and kind of funny experience. My husband is like, stop it. Very sorry. Right. I know. Everybody wants to like push us down. But like, Don't make a spectacle. Stop doing that. Um, oh, he's so wonderful, though. He's, he's laughing. <laughs> this is happening. Thinking, baby, this is not the time. Right. This is not the time. But what can you do? What can you do? Um, you've mentioned transmuting energy a few different times. What does it mean to transmute energy? So energy is ever-present, right? We can never get rid of it, but we can change it. So transmutation is the act of taking low vibrational dark energy that does not serve us and changing it, transforming it into high vibrational divine light energy that serves all beings. And that's really the work of and it's what I'm doing in the world to the best of my ability. And um, I've now come to realize that this is the gift that I was born with, mostly because I was yawning around the dinner table as a child <laughs> during the prayers, getting right. a big trouble, and I didn't realize what I was doing. Um, so now that I've actually relearned how to do that and how to do it with purpose, I have a lot more control over it. But I've come to believe after... You know, years of therapy and programs like Landmark and Avatar and studying world religions and really doing everything that I could get my hands on in an attempt to heal. Because I knew that I needed to. I just didn't know how. So I tried everything, everything that crossed my path. And I feel like I got something valuable from each different thing. But none of them... None of them were everything I needed. Like none of them came even close, to be very honest. I felt like I was perpetually on this path where I'd get one nugget here and one nugget there, but I never really learned. I mean, it just brought it all to the surface. I didn't understand how to get rid of it. So it wasn't until I met Christopher, the healer that I describe in my book, and he reminded me that I have this power to transmute that energy for myself and others. And it's really about getting that trauma out of your body. So it's no longer informing how you show up in the world. So, yeah, I was just going to ask you about Christopher. So, so how, how did you meet Christopher? So my husband and I, and I, I love this man so much and it's mutual, but somehow we were on the brink of divorce. Mm-hmm. We, it's almost humorous because it was never about the two of us. It was in retrospect, it was all the ugly trauma and darkness we had dragged into our relationship that um, was from not only our own lives, but mostly our lineage. It was intergenerational trauma that had never been healed and was just vomiting all over our field. Mm, And for both of us, it was sexual abuse. Mm. And so, you know, eventually, especially I feel like if you, if you have a partner or children, those intimate relationships have a tendency to reflect back to you anything that's not working, anything that you have yet to resolve in your own life. Mm -hmm. So even though we were absolutely mad about each other, still are 20 years later, 
we were on the verge of total collapse because we just didn't know what to do anymore. We had tried everything we knew of to try and we were miserable. So one day I was uh, telling this story and basically having a breakdown on the table of my longtime body worker from when I, um, back when I lived in LA, he's a good friend of mine. And, um, I was just crying. I was at the end of my rope. I didn't know what to do. I was about to leave my husband because we had three very young boys at the time. And um, my poor husband's trauma showed up as him just exiting his body. He would just not be there anymore. One small stressor or trigger and his physical self would be standing in front of me, but his soul would vanish. He would become completely numb and just not there. Oh, wow. That's so hard to deal with. It, it really was. And of course, my trauma wasn't helping because mine would be to try and take control and overcorrect and get very angry and full of rage. <laughs> so this was not a healthy combination. Okay. And um, so I'm telling my friend all this. And that day he had taken on a new partner in his practice who had asked if he could sit in and on our session. And I had said, sure. And poor guy, I think I forgot that he was there, honestly, as I'm pouring my heart out. And then I hear his voice quietly pipe up and say, I know we don't know each other, but I have a guy I think you should meet. And I was, I was desperate. I would have tried anything that I thought could actually be helpful. So I said, yes, please tell me. Mm -hmm. So he told me a little bit about a man that he had gone through 20 years of training with um, really amazing stories. And he told me, he said, well, he's a little out there. Why don't you get his book and see what you think? I said, okay. So I ordered the book. The moment it came, I didn't even need to crack that book open because his picture was on the cover. And the resonance, the deep soul resonance I felt for this man was unbelievable. In fact, the only time I had ever felt that before in my life was for the man who's now my husband. And when we met, I had the same thing happen. So I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to call him. <laughs> and um, long story short, my husband went to work with him first. So we spent a week uh, a week with him and it, it was a he would he would go for the day and come back and go for the day and come back so um, when he came back the first day I noticed that he was actually present with our children he was laughing with them and I don't think I had realized that I'd never heard him laugh he was so serious and had so much stress all the time and then, um, oh, I should also mention from the day I met my husband, he's had a very dark entity attached to him. Um, it was, it almost looked like a shadow and I knew it wasn't his. I could tell it was from his maternal ancestral line, wow. but I didn't know really who or what it was, but it was always there. Okay. Like a curse. <clears throat> By Wednesday, this entity was a couple of feet away. So it was still hanging around, but it had let go of his body. And I thought, wow. And his eyes, I remember the whites of his eyes were so bright. I felt like I'd never seen his eyes before. And by Friday, he was the man that I had always felt that he was, but he could never express. He was present, laughing. I remember we went to a wedding shortly thereafter and he danced with me. He had never wanted to be joyful or expressive or in the moment. He couldn't before. And just the miraculous transformation I saw blew my mind. And I thought, I need to go see this guy. So um, then I went to see Christopher. And the, the experience, it would really take weeks to share. But in a, in a very short way, 
um, actually, I'll tell a brief story that I think might help um, the souls who are listening understand what I experienced that day, because I, I really didn't know what to expect. Okay. So um, when I pulled up to his, um, it's his office, but it, it looks like a like a home on the beach in a very lovely area. I saw that his place was under construction and my heart sank because there was a big construction crew, lots of workers, and I was going to have to walk through them to get to the front door. And I think every woman has had this experience where it's not pleasant to walk by a construction site. And in my case, I had had a really horrible experience years earlier that started this same way. And so part of me didn't even want to go in. I thought, oh, is this an omen? Is this a bad sign? Maybe I shouldn't go. Right. But I thought, no, I'm here. I'm going in. So uh, I put on my my invisible armor and prepare myself for what I know is coming. And I walked in. And sure enough, the the comments were just vulgar and <coughs> as I expected. And I put my head down and I just barreled on in. I get in the building. So I get up to the second floor and Christopher opens the door. And we just stood there staring at each other for what felt like an eternity. And I recognized him. I knew who he was. I just couldn't quite put it together. And he said, I've been looking for you. I thought, what is happening? So anyway, um, the first thing we did was transmute my sexual trauma. Because he had me tell him everything I could remember. All the trauma I could remember that was of a sexual abuse nature. And that he took me through my first transmutation and it didn't necessarily feel like much had happened. Um, it felt great. And then after we were done, I had an extraordinary vision that would, would take far too long to explain, but uh, it is in my book for anyone who's interested. Okay. But then he said, okay, go, go out, go for a walk, go have lunch. And I thought, all right. I didn't really know what he was doing. I had a twinkle in his eye. So I walked back down the hall and called the elevator. And when he had told me that we needed to transmute the frequency of sexual assault, because I was attracting this experience to me over and over and over. So the elevator door opens and who's inside this tiny elevator, but the construction worker that had been the most disgusting just two hours earlier. And again, I almost failed. I almost ran for the stairs, but I thought, nope, the, the stubborn part of me doesn't want anyone to displace me in the world. So I got it. And this man looked down at the floor and said, excuse me, ma'am, you look, or I hope you don't mind my saying you look beautiful today. I thought, what? <laughs> and before he said something lewd and crude to you? So vulgar, like too vulgar to even, that's why I didn't put it in the book. <laughs> Just, right. I couldn't okay. even type it. Okay. And then and I was confused. I thought, did, did something fall on your head? <laughs> what happened? What are you talking about? And he stared at the ground all the way down. And um, he didn't say another word. And then when the door opened, he he looked up. He didn't meet my eyes, but he tipped his hat. Literally. Like really, like a gentleman. <laughs> yes, he was, it was deferential. And then I walked out through the rest of the construction workers, and there was not a peep, not a word, not a whistle, nothing. And for the rest of my lunch break, I had more experiences just like that that would have gone very differently hours earlier. And I finally understood what Christopher meant when he said, we need to change your frequency. Because all of my experience 
not just mine, but my mother's and my grandmother's and all my ancestry had created a frequency of abuse that was essentially broadcasting. And, you know, I think the soul wants to understand what happens to us. So it draws that same experience over and over until we can actually work it out, work through that trauma. And in one transmutation, he rid me of that frequency. And since that day, I have never had a disrespectful interaction with another man again, not once. And that was years ago now. That is so cool. I came into this world terrified of men and I would feel creepy around them. And I knew that I had something that had happened to me or could have been energy from before. And up until my, maybe like the age of 23, 24, 25, I had a lot of weird, I attracted a lot of weird sexual energy to me. Um, And that doesn't happen anymore. I don't know what, how, how this, how I did this, but there is still something. Somebody can look at me, a man, it has to be a man, can look at me a certain way and I feel the creepy come back. And it can be anybody, but these are innocent people. They're not being creepy, but there's something that reminds me of something that brings it back. So how did Christopher, did you have to do anything to transmute this or he just did the work? (laughs) Um, So that's a tough question to answer. I can answer for myself because the journey is completely different for every person. So he, a lot of the work is physical because trauma also lives in our bodies, right? It lodges itself into our organs, our energetic pathways, and that all has to be pushed out, which is not pleasant, but boy, is it effective. But because I had so much sexual trauma, he didn't even touch me until day four. So for the first few days, it was a lot of talking and verbal and energetic work so what a transmutation with him looked like for me then especially since I had no memory being able to do this for myself would say the words and I would repeat them speaking to my own body my own lineage my own soul because really we have to do the work ourselves Mm -hmm. someone else can assist hold the space and, and give us tools but we have to pull that energy out and send it back to the light where it belongs So that was a lot of the first few days. And um, and some of it, it feels like traditional therapy in that you're recalling the experiences that need to be transmuted. But then the difference is you actually get them out, which is lovely. But, but then a lot of the work is physical. Um, so it's, it is intense. <laughs> I will be very honest. It's an intense journey. But the payoff is miraculous I didn't even know this was possible and my husband says the same thing and he had a totally different experience but what we have in common is that on the other side of this work we both feel such an incredible freedom that was never there we can literally feel the places in our bodies where we were holding all of this trauma because they became empty we literally got rid of that trauma and then it became a bit of a vacuum where then you have to fill it, right? You have to decide oh, right. who you really are. So now um, in a relatively short period of years, our lives have completely changed. We have both stepped fully into our, our power, our places as, as leaders and teachers and guides and uh, have been of service in a way that would never have been possible just five years ago. Where's, where's Christopher located? 
He's in LA, in Marina Del Rey, but he travels constantly. He goes wherever the work is. Oh, that's amazing. Interested, they can look him up. Right. Um, so he used he, he used different techniques, and um, you see, he used a physical technique called ma. What is it? Ma sing ma. Ma jing. Yeah, ma jing. Um, which engages the bladder channel, considered the master channel in Chinese meridian theory. Um, and he said that this channel has access to every aspect of a human being's behavior and thoughts, including their mind, brain, physical being, spiritual energy, and emotional intelligence. So explain to us how, uh, how this work, Ma Jing, works. So um, I'll tell you about my first experience of it with him. So on day four, <laughs> um, he had me lay face down on the ground on a yoga mat. And he started very gently stepping on the backs of my legs just walking. And at first, um, it was, I didn't feel too much at all. I, was, I think I was actually numb in retrospect. After, and he just kept stepping and stepping and very slowly increasing the pressure. And all of a sudden, it became unbelievably painful. And I started to feel this release of energy come out in massive pulses through my body. And while that was happening, I started to have visions. And they were all brutal, violent deaths. And it took me a minute to realize they were my own history. They were some, so just some, because I've since remembered many more. They were some of the experiences, the traumas of my past that have informed everything that I was carrying around. So while he was using his heels to press into the backs of my legs, he was pushing out energy that was stuck there. And so I felt it very physically. I felt, um, I kind of felt like a superhero. <laughs> there was so much energy vibrating through my body that I felt like um, the ground and I were polarized magnets. Like this energy was pushing me off the ground and it was shooting out of my limbs, my, my fingers and my toes and my head. I could very much feel it shooting out of my crown chakra. And um, it was so intense that I remember thinking that all I can do is breathe and surrender. Like the only way to survive this, this intensity of, of pain, of memory, of terror is to just surrender. And um, that's what I did. And I just, I remember breathing. I, I've never breathed so hard in my life, including through three labors with large headed boys. <laughs> and, um, finally, he stopped. And I just lay there. I was sweating, exhausted. I was just a puddle. And it took quite a long time for this energy to subside and for me to stop pulsating. And when I finally had the strength to lift up my head, I looked at him and I asked him, because I felt like I had come off the ground. I'd opened my eyes at one point and I would have sworn that I was off the ground just a little bit, but this is not something I thought was possible. And I said, was it my imagination? Or was I actually levitating? And I say this thinking I'm crazy for even saying this. And he winked at me and said, why do you think I was standing on you? <laughs> so make of that what you will. Oh, uh, wow. So who knows how high you would have gone? Who know, I, I did, I, That version of me didn't even know that was remotely possible. I would have thought, if someone had said that to me, I would have thought, you are crazy. But the things I've experienced in subsequent years have taught me that truly anything is possible. But the most interesting part was in, uh, after I finally recovered a bit, he said, okay, 
go walk up and down the hall until you feel like you can walk again. I said, what are you talking about? Walk again. I got up and I fell down. I could not walk because all that energy and that trauma had been in my legs my whole life. So my relationship to time and space was defined by whatever was in there, right? I'd learned to walk with it in there. I had continued to walk with it in there. So once he had removed it, I couldn't walk. It took me about 20 minutes of kind of stumbling up and down the hallway and reorienting my body to the world that my body kind of not, not regular because that's a little strong, but I had to almost remember how to walk again without that stuff in there. And I've had that experience at this point, probably 50 times with him in different parts of my body because he'll go wherever the trauma is. But every single time I become very aware of what I was holding on to that is no longer present. And it, it's odd. You feel a, a space in your body and it's then on you to feel with who you really are. This is, this is incredible stuff. Who is Christopher? I mean, how long has he been doing this work? And um, who who is he? What is this gift? Where does he get this gift? He's difficult to describe. So I I would say this is definitely divine. This is a God-given gift. He has a really deeply traumatic story as well, a a truly horrific childhood. And I've come to believe after... You know, meeting him, having my own childhood, and at this point, connecting with so many others that I consider members of my tribe, I think we chose incredibly traumatic and difficult childhoods because we needed to remember who we really are and what we're really capable of. Uh, and I think it was for the moment that we are in now in the world because we have to lead. There are so many walking wounded out there who are ensconced in such fight or flight deep tragic um just terrible you know terrible places so i feel like in a lot of ways we as our our soul tribe opted to get through that early on Mm -hmm. so we could recall how we deal with this and help heal other people and so he has a, a truly terrible story he talks about it a bit in his book uh, which is called Free for Life. And it's it's an amazing read. And it, it definitely gives you a better idea of what he actually does. Okay. But free after for life. life. Uh, free for Life. Okay. Yeah. His name is Christopher Maher. M-A-H-E-R. Okay. And he uh, he became, so his response to his trauma, like so many of us, was to basically get really angry and become an overachiever and decide, well, I'm just not going to think about it and it'll go away. (laughs) And of course that never works. Um, And he became a Navy SEAL. And so, you know, this man is in incredible physical shape more so than what is SEALs are probably in the top 0.01% of physical capability in the world. And he's a very young man. And all of a sudden he starts to go blind and lose the, um, what was it? Oh, I'm not saying it well, but essentially lose his ability to control his own body. Um, Knees are failing. Sight is failing. His hearing is failing. And so um, he went on a long healing journey as well. Studied with uh, many, many different disciplines with many different, whatever you'd like to call them, uh, masters, gurus, or just teachers, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a couple of decades, but 
he remembered who he really is and why he really came. So he's been at this for a very long time. He's in his 50s now. And um, this this is what he does. He awakens souls and essentially allows you to take back the true nature of your being and decide what kind of life you want rather than forever being a slave to external forces, whether it's your family or intergenerational trauma or the world at large, which is a bit broken at the moment. I love it. And he wrote the afterword um, for your book. Okay. Um, so we're, we're pretty much at the end of the show, but there's this, but you say um, in, in the end, before the afterward, by being honest, you magnify the vibrations of honesty and make it easier for others to be honest. Hold up your divine light like a beacon of love and truth and light. Light the path forward for those who cannot yet see. <clears throat> I want you to talk about that a little bit because I truly believe that we can do this, and this is really our responsibility, is to not follow the path of, of darkness and confusion and fight against it, but to light up and shed light on things, right? So that's that's my feeling, right? Absolutely. I could not agree more. It took me a long time to realize that the way to really light up the world, change the collective consciousness and end these cycles of violence and suffering that have been plaguing earth for so very long, so many generations at this point, is not to rage against the machine like I used to. Yeah, <laughs> um, okay. Many past lives. That's why I was killed so many times. <laughs> and okay. even in this life, you know, my initial my initial inclination was to scream and fight and yell and battle and you know, write to my congressman and mm. <laughs> you know, just it was it was kind of a violent and aggressive response. Right. Um, I really wanted to to fight the power as I saw it, but it's taken me this long to realize that the way we actually change the system cannot be from within the broken system. You can't fix something broken from inside of it. You have to step outside of it and create what you want to exist. And for me, actually, something Christopher said to me once really made an impact. I don't think I'll ever forget it. Um, it was early on in uh, in COVID. I was working, uh, I was actually consulting for a big Ivy League medical school at the time. And prior to COVID, I had loved it. It had been a great relationship. But during COVID, they became a part of the narrative that was telling people to stay in their homes and stop associating with their loved ones. Um, there was no messaging about, about diet or nutrition or how to be healthier, that a social circle is important, fresh air is important. It was none of this. It was all this very dark narrative of fear. Yeah. And I didn't want to be involved in it. And he said, but what if your energy is the only thing there that's keeping them from going over the edge? One drop of black paint can turn an entire can of white paint gray. And I realized, I was like, oh my God, it's energetic. We have to change this energetically. So it's not, you know, railing about the, the our broken healthcare system or uh, really all of our systems are quite broken at this point or big pharma or the war machine. Because of course, all of that, it's designed to manipulate. It's designed to elicit fear because when humans are fearful, we're easy to control. 
right? If they dangle the bait and say, oh, look at this, this will kill you if you don't do X, Y, or Z. Right. And we fall into compliance and we are not in, in creation mode because humans are actually very powerful creators. Um, there's some of this messaging in religion. We are reflections of the creator, but so often that message gets warped and twisted to kind of keep us under the proverbial thumb. But what we really need to do is embody our divine light and lead by example. We need to be the kindness and compassion that we want to see in the world. We need to stop responding to what I affectionately refer to as the dark side's attempts to pull us back down in the gutter. It doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't horrible and that we don't deeply empathize with those who are being harmed. Mm. The only way to change it is to pull that energy up into the light. So we're, yeah, thank you. That was, you, you said that very well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Um, act To me, activists are just adding more, pouring fuel onto the fire. Uh, they're not going to make any changes. No, I agree. It took me a long time to get that. <laughs> and also on that note, um, so much of humanity loves to feel their time with distractions like social media or mainstream media. I know so many people that just keep CNN or, or whatever running in the background 24 hours a day, but it's important for people to recognize that all of that exists on a frequency that is designed to lower your vibration and make you easier to control. Yeah. It's much wiser to simply turn it off mm. and listen to the voice that is inside you desperately trying to be heard. So true. Yeah, we're everyone is just very distracted and very manipulated right now. <clears throat> so thank you. That's a that's a great way. That's a great message for all of us. Turn it off. <clears throat> you know, I, I can sit there in front of the the news or whatever, and I'm not influenced by it at all. You know, it's like it just doesn't even like, okay, they're saying that, but that doesn't mean it's true, you know, so I can see it and sort of feel my own way through it. Um, <clears throat> but not everybody can do that. And it's, it's causing a lot of um, division, you know, among humans. It is. I feel like that clarity is such a gift, because like you said, not everyone can do that. I don't even think it's most people who can do that. So I feel like for those of us who have that clarity, it's our obligation to, to hold the light. To yeah. hold it up and keep holding it until this world is the place we want it to be that Absolutely. works for everyone. And it's coming. It's absolutely coming. 100%. Yeah. You know, I had um, a ch somebody who did Chinese astrology on the other day and on my show, and she said she was talking about the years. And the next year is the year of the dragon, the Chinese year of the dragon. <clears throat> and I said, well, what is that going to be like? She said, it's going to be a lot of confusion and chaos she said but the following year is where it's all going to just chill and be kind and wonderful and soft and loving so you know we may have another year that we have to really focus that light hard <laughs> but sooner <laughs> or later it's going to happen it's going to happen so oh, that's beautiful and i love her perspective because i feel similarly about the timeline but um, I have no knowledge 
of the Chinese astrology. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. But I've also been told from my guides that 2024 will be full of what looks like great upheaval, but it's, it's change. It's the shakeup, right? It's growing pains. And that the following year, we will start to see that harmony that we've been yes. working for for so long. And, and thank you, because that, that is validation for what she said based on, you know, the astrology. Uh, which she truly believes in and has you know done a lot of work with so so yeah that that's really cool well thank you for that validation brianna it's been so good talking to you thank you for writing this amazing book emerging from darkness <clears throat> and this is a really great read listeners this is a really great read um it's a memoir but there's so much more there and i believe you'll relate to a lot of it so, Brianna, thank you for all the work that you do, writing this beautiful book, being the person that you are, and being my guest today. I got lucky. Oh, thank you so much. Likewise, I feel the same way. This was just divine and so very much fun. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So have a wonderful day. It's so good to meet you. You too. I'll see you soon. Okay, bye-bye.